of Psalm 23, is one of the most quoted passages in all of scripture. Um, I think maybe the Lord's Prayer is up there with it, uh, but you know, it's the one on pillowcases, wall decals, car bumper stickers, whatever. It's everywhere. Painted on the trendy uh, farmhouse style boards, wherever. Lord is my shepherd. And the pretty calligraphy that Sister Regina has just started, uh, her artistic talent. She's trying out a new artistic talent in calligraphy. Great passage to write in calligraphy. It's familiar to Christians and to non-Christians alike uh, because it's used to bring hope and encouragement in trials and comfort in our grief. And it's a beautiful passage in its poetry and profound in its simplicity. And it's just so very familiar to a lot of us sitting here today that I'm sure even though I only read the one verse, we're only looking at the one verse, Everybody in here probably sat down and just went ahead and recited the whole rest of the passage in their head, because you can't help it. Uh, it's just one of those passages of scripture. It flows so easily because it's of its poetry. But my focus today and this morning is on this one verse. So you think you're getting a short sermon, don't you? <laughs> I have a couple of, anyway, anyway, anyway. We'll see what happens. <laughs> So when you think about this verse and what it's really saying um, and what it really means, it's almost an unbelievable statement. Anybody else feel that way? The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. In fact, uh, that's the New Living Translation. But in another translation, it says it like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Now, we live in the United States of America, in North America. And when is the last time anybody heard anybody say, oh, I have all that I need. I lack nothing. You know, if that were true, then Red Robin would never have to have come up with bottomless fries. Would you like more fries? Thank you. I have all that I need. Now, that's not something we say. Somebody hands out free cash on the street just doing this with their millions and trillions and billions. Thank you. I'll leave. I lack nothing. I can just walk past all this glittering gold. Just walk right past it. I don't need that. I lack nothing. Yeah, it's just not something we hear. It's not something we say. Not exempting myself here. I'm right, right with you. Free anything, we take it because it's free. We don't even know what to do with it. We don't even have an idea. It ends up in file 13. Do you guys use that term, file 13? Okay, I said that once and got stares. Um, so it's just not something we hear a lot about. And when we really think about what that means, I have all that I need, I lack nothing, it kind of makes this verse unbelievable. That somebody in history said that and meant it, and I want to know who this person is and what they're all about. What kind of life would merit such a confident statement? So this morning, I want to focus on the author of this psalm, 
who is also responsible for writing most of the book of Psalms in the Bible, and this is King David. <clears throat> we know a fair amount about David's life in scripture because we have a detailed and lengthy record of his life in the books of First and Second Samuel. So there's a lot that's written about him. Because when I went to study for the Sunday sermon, oh my, I thought, this is too much for one Sunday sermon. So honestly, I'm trying to decide what all to include out of First and Second Samuel of David's life. But what I want to do today is not be in the specifics and details of his story necessarily, but I want to paint this bigger picture of David's life um, because it's from his life experiences and his relationship with God that he penned the verse of verse one of Psalm 23. So the stories that I'm going to be referencing today, I mean, really, we're just like broad stroke here. Um, the stories I'm going to be referencing are out of First and Second Samuel. So if you want to read some more of the details, or if you're like, well, she left this out, and that was really important, you can go find it yourself in First and Second Samuel, because <laughs> I will leave things out. Um, so who was this David that wrote this verse? Well, First Samuel tells the story of three characters, main characters, the prophet Samuel, King Saul, and David, who becomes King David. And it mainly covers the rise and fall of King Saul and the rise and, uh, of King, da King Saul's successor, David. And some of the most loved Sunday school lessons are recorded in 1 Samuel. Like David, the little pious shepherd boy, a descendant of Judah, and Ruth, his great-grandmother, son of Jesse, youngest of eight sons, who slays the Goliath giant, uh, sorry, yeah, Goliath the giant, with just a sling and, in, and a rock in the name of the Lord. He knew, even as a young boy, that the Lord was truly all he needs. And then we have David, the young musician, who was sought out by a distraught king, Saul, to play music for him, to ease his mind that was constantly in turmoil. King Saul had started off a good king, a godly king, uh, and had chosen his own way and found himself in great turmoil for the rest of his life. So the king saw the hand of God on David, and because of that, he chose to bring David in as a young man and part of his royal court. And little did King Saul realize at this point that this young musician would become his successor, because King Saul had disobeyed that word of the Lord through his prophet Samuel, and God would eventually remove his favor from Saul and would then anoint this young man, David, as his successor. And then we read about David, who was also the warrior and the national hero of Israel. And he actually can kind of thank King Saul in a roundabout way for becoming one of the most effective um, and successful military leaders of Israel. King Saul had become envious of David's popularity with the people after slaying Goliath and being this musician that brings peace. And, and the, the nation of Israel saw God's hand and favor on David, and they loved him for it. And this made Saul very jealous. And so he tries to kill David by throwing a javelin at his head while he's trying to play music for him. 
Can you imagine that? Of course, God protects David, and King Saul's attempt is unsuccessful. But out of this growing hate for David, he makes him, uh, Saul decides to make David this general in his armies with the hope that, oh, he'll just get killed out at war. Put him in the front lines, he'll get killed, that'll take care of him. Since he doesn't have very good aim, he's got to let somebody else take care of him. Uh, But instead, David enjoys victory after victory as a general in his armies. And so the book of 1 Samuel records more than one occasion in which David had to flee from King Saul for his own life. But each time, God provided the protection and the provision through people, lots of people, and places he had to go of safety in order for David to hide until it was safe for the Lord to bring him back onto the scene. And on two occasions, scriptures tell us that David had the opportunity to kill King Saul himself. But because of his integrity, his honor of God's anointed king, he refused to do that, um, and he would not kill God's anointed king. But King Saul didn't share David's integrity. And God protected David as he fled from Saul until Saul's tragic death Uh, And it's amazing to me that David, even after this man had on several occasions tried to take his life, David grieved the death of Saul. That's how 2 Samuel begins. But the majority of the book of 2 Samuel tells the story of King David as the anointed king of Israel. King David's anointed by God at the young age of 30 and the divine blessings of God that brought King David great successes and brought the nation of Israel under unprecedented military victories is found in chapters 1 through 10, big chunk of 2 Samuel. Under David's leadership, his armies conquered many of their surrounding armies that the former King Saul had made. The nation of Israel saw national and spiritual blessings under King David. In chapter 7, chapter 7 is kind of an important chapter here, David says to God, I want to build you a temple and and give you a proper place, a rightful place for your presence to abide among your people. David had established Jerusalem as the political capital, and now he wanted to establish it as the religious capital in honor of the God of Israel. But God instead makes a covenant promise with David that he'll establish a dynasty through his lineage and that this temple that he desired to build will be be built, but it won't be by him. And later on, we read that one of his sons, Solomon, another familiar name uh, in scripture, fulfills this promise and builds the temple that David had envisioned. So all of this, All of these great blessings, all of these many victories, all of these great successes for David was because he was a man of God and he was the man of God that Saul failed to be. So these several chapters are devoted to recording all of David's blessings and successes and all to the glory of God. 
The people of the nation of Israel witnessed God's favor that brought blessings on the nation of Israel, and God was pleased. But as high as David's mountaintops were, we also read in scriptures that his valleys were equally as low. Not all valleys in life are caused by or results of our sin. But for David, some of his lowest valleys were a result of his sin. And these things greatly displeased God. So David's story begins to turn. We're moving, turning, shifting from the wonderful stories told of King David and all his victories. And we're taking a turn here in the second, ha second half of 2 Samuel when he meets the beautiful Bathsheba. And as the story goes, David desires this married woman for himself. And he wants what he wants, and he's going to get it. And so they conceive a baby while she's still married to her husband, Uriah. And in an effort to cover it up, David abandons his integrity and humility that has served him so well thus far in his uh, reign for his own selfish desires. And he kills Uriah, this innocent man and this leader also of his own armies. And now David, this great leader and God's anointed, has become an adulterer and a murderer. And scripture says that David didn't really regret his actions. This doesn't sound like the same David that spared the life of King Saul. Not once, but twice. This man that tried to kill him. And God was not pleased with David. So God sends the prophet Nathan, a messenger, to deliver a message to King David, rebuking his sin committed with Bathsheba and calling him to repentance over what he had done. Or else God would not spare his life and he'd reap consequences of his actions. But when the prophet brought the, him the word of the Lord, when, he, when the prophet brought David this word from God, David confessed his sin, and he repented, and God forgave him. So oftentimes, these mountaintop experiences are followed by valley experiences. Ever been so high and then fell real low? It just seems to be what happens in order to find balance again. The high victory can cause us, like it did David, to lose sight of who really credit is due and who was really present with him or with us on that mountaintop. I was thinking of that song, Hills and Valleys. You know, it plays on the radio station like all the time. But I like the song, so that's probably good because it plays, plays a lot. Um, it's that Hills and Valleys song, and there's a, some lyrics in there that says, when I'm standing on the mountain, I didn't get there on my own. And when I'm walking through the valley, I am not alone, speaking of God. You're the God of the hills and the valleys. In other words, kind of using this metaphor, I'm going to be merging these two things here in, in just a minute, but using this metaphor from Psalm 23, when our confidence shifts from from God to ourselves, 
That's when we find ourselves no longer in need of him. And when we begin, and when that happens, we begin to relieve God of the areas in our lives that we just don't really need him anymore. Rather than, I need you, Lord, that being our prayer, it becomes, I might need you for this, but this, I just want to go my own way. So I just want to stop for a second and point out here that it is not our shepherd who abandons us. Scripture promises, there's scripture that promises us that God will never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Rather, it's his sheep, Psalm 23, using the language, it's his sheep that choose to isolate ourselves from him, and in doing so, we find ourselves going astray, following our own way, rather than that way of the shepherd. And that's where King David had found himself after meeting Bathsheba. God forgave David, but he still had to face these consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. So for a time, David's family was riddled with strife and rebellion that led to tragedy. The son that was conceived with Bathsheba died. There was sexual abuse among his family. David's sons killed one another as revenge, and another son tried to plot to kill his father David. You think, you know, Saul going after him a couple times in life would be enough, but no, he had, he had more people after him for his life. But even in the midst of that mess, God kept his covenant promise that he made to David through his son Solomon. And David's lineage through Solomon was blessed beyond what he himself had experienced in his own lifetime. Before David dies at the age of 70, he had reigned now for 40 years. 30, he became anointed king. At 70, he dies. His advice for his son and successor, Solomon, on his deathbed is to walk in the ways of the Lord. This is the life lesson that David wanted his own son to know and to follow. So what I've tried to achieve here in a short amount of time was to kind of give us this bird's eye view on the life, you know, the highs, the lows, the ups, the downs of David and who he was, you know, rather than kind of honing in on a little snapshot of one point in his life. And earlier I asked, what kind of life would merit such a confident statement like the one we find in Psalm 23, verse 1? The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Well, it's certainly not from the life of a perfect person, is it? I appreciate a couple things about the example of David. One being that most of us can see ourselves somewhere in his story. I'm not talking about the specifics necessarily. Maybe for you it is a specific part of his story. But the fact was that he was a flawed human being that sometimes made good decisions, right decisions, and sometimes made poor decisions uh, that landed him in places that he never thought he would be in. That's what sin does to us. And the other is that David's response to the prophet uh, 
I appreciate his repentant heart towards God. This act alone, this repentant heart of David, is a distinct trait of him in the Bible and earned him the title, the man after God's own heart. Because God isn't seeking perfection. That's not why he anointed an unlikely little shepherd boy to become king. But God does require humility. And David's pride, when it got him into trouble, his response to God and God's correction through the prophet Nathan was through humility. And it's out of this tension that David writes the Psalms. So that brings us back to Psalm 23. David wrote a profound truth in this one little dinky, simple verse. The implication being, as long as the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. Amen. This is what I have for us this morning. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. And this general overview of David's life serves as our example that whether we find ourselves in the middle of the blessing of the Lord, on a mountaintop, or we find ourselves sinking deep into the valley, we have a choice to make the Lord the shepherd over our lives. David made God his shepherd again and again, adulterer, murderer. After following his own ways and desires, like a lost sheep, to use his language here, he ended up far from God's protection. But in his response, he chose to follow his shepherd again. He made the Lord his shepherd one more time. Psalm 23 is only six verses long. The following five verses are statements that prove the truth of verse 1 and answers, and uh, how is the Lord my shepherd? And how do I have all that I need because he is my shepherd? So if you'd read with me right now the rest of this psalm, Starting with verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows, he leads me beside peaceful streams, he renews my strength, he guides me along paths bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This was a personal psalm of David. The shepherd and sheep metaphor is used throughout scripture in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship to his people, and it's mostly used as a communal metaphor. 
the one shepherd to the many sheep. But Psalm 23 is written from the perspective of a sheep, just one, named David. And verse 1 is the only recorded instance in the Bible in which God is referred to as this personal shepherd because of the use of that pronoun, my. The Lord is my shepherd. We serve a personal God this morning, amen, who, love, who loves and cares for his flock. He loves and cares for us as a whole. Yes, that is absolutely true. But he also desires a personal relationship with each of his sheep, with each of us. That little pronoun here really matters. It takes on a different feel when we say, my shepherd versus our shepherd. Both are true, but what makes God my shepherd this morning, me, me, <laughs> mine, <laughs> reflects my relationship with him. And what makes God your shepherd this morning is based on your relationship with him. He is both the shepherd of each of us and of all of us. Amen. Being a shepherd boy, David chose to convey God's protection and provision using the language of shepherd and sheep in this psalm. He not only knows the truth that that's true in his present, but the psalm ends with the expectation, that, and we just read it, that as long as the Lord is my shepherd, he will continue to be all that I need forever if he chooses to continue to make him the Lord, his shepherd. I want us to think about our own lives here for a minute and how we would prove this statement like David did, but in our own context, in our own language, using our own words and experiences. So maybe we're not shepherds around here. Anybody a shepherd? I don't want to leave... Anybody? Nobody's a shepherd. Okay, so maybe we're not shepherds here like, like little David was, but how would you write this psalm about your personal Lord and shepherd of your life? What would you include in the five verses following that first verse that explain that statement? I'm rolling into a conclusion here. Jesus himself used the shepherd and flock metaphor to describe his relationship with us when he revealed himself as the good shepherd found in John chapter 10. He gave his life for his sheep so that each of us could have salvation through him and so that all of us could spend eternity with him. Can I have my title this morning? My question to you today is... Have you made him your shepherd? David experienced great blessings over the course of his life, but when he found himself far from the ways of his shepherd, it is his response to God. And not his sin, not even his level of sin, as we tend to do, that sets David's example in scripture apart from so many. We all have sinned. That's a part of being human. That's where we see ourselves in David's story. But he made the Lord his shepherd again and again, 
and turned from his own ways to follow the shepherd just one more time. What areas of your life do you need to give over to the Lord and make him your shepherd? Are you in, in need or seeking salvation this morning? Are you in need of repentance this morning? Are you experiencing grief and wondering how you're going to get through it? Is there a battle within you against temptation, a battle that's making you feel weary? Are you feeling abandoned by God? Psalm 22 that comes before Psalm 23, the first line is from David is, Why have you forsaken me, O God? Why have you forsaken me? In need of direction, dealing with sin today, or dealing with pain in your past or present. The message this morning is no matter your need, as long as the Lord is your shepherd, as long as you make the Lord your shepherd, you will have all that you need today. Amen. That's all I have for you. I want to open up these altars. Or if you would like, find somewhere in your pew to pray this morning. And find a place where you can talk to the one who wants to be the shepherd of your life.